Chapter 25 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Manalakis. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 25 by Thomas W. Knox. Training Schools of Crime. Drink the Root of Evil. Great Responsibility of the Liquor Traffic for Crime, Plain Facts, and Startling Statements. Although social scientists have for many years been endeavoring to find means to prevent and punish violations of law, there is no special organization in New York City having for its object the discovery of the most prolific sources or causes of crime. Mr. William Delamater, who in discharge of his official duties in connection with the police department, has had exceptional opportunity for the study of crime and its causes, and to whom I am indebted for much information contained in this chapter, says that crime may be the effect of numerous causes which multiply themselves indefinitely as we go backward in our examination of them. It has so many phases and degrees that a course of reasoning from a general effect to a special cause would be unsatisfactory. The commission of a murder, for instance, may be the natural sequence of a burglary, the latter of a petty theft, which last may come of a desperate need for the alleviation of hunger or the distress of poverty, or a desire to obtain the means for gratifying a passing whim, or all may be and often are the results of a single glass of liquor. There is a distinct tendency to the massing together of the rich in their own sections of the city. It is not merely that they find each other's society congenial, but that they conscientiously avoid and weed out the poor. The man of wealth will pay an exorbitant price for a lot which he does not want, merely to get some wretched shanties and their occupants out of his neighborhood. The church, of which it should be the glory that the poor have the gospel preached to them, sells its hallowed shrine for a warehouse and rebuilds miles away as soon as the poor hive in any numbers around its doors. This massing of wealth involves the massing of poverty. The poor are driven by inexorable necessity into the poor quarters of the city, where they pull each other further down from all chance and hope. Whoever follows a case of distress to its abiding place finds it in part of one room of a tenement house, and that one room duplicated in wretchedness by range after range of rooms, from the oozy cellar to the leaky garret, and that house duplicated by streets full of other houses, till benevolence stands aghast at misery miles in area and six stories deep. Individual help seems like putting one drop of oil upon a stormy sea. Fifth Avenue and the slums grow ever more hopelessly asunder. Fifth Avenue despises the slums, and the slums hate Fifth Avenue. This massing of wealth and poverty tends to vice at both ends of the social scale, especially at the lowest. A life without an innocent joy, unthanked, unpitied toil, merely for the means to toil, an atmosphere foul with physical rottenness and fouler with the oaths and obscenity that are poured out on every breath, school privileges well nigh impossible for want of decent food and clothing, and the hard necessity of child labor, no chance to hear the gospel in the temples where the rich and the poor do not meet together, though the Lord be maker of them all. A hundred saloons to one mission Sunday school, open twenty-four hours a day and seven days in the week to the Sunday schools one hour and one day. Is it surprising that pauperism and crime live and thrive 
and they both soon become professional. That criminal tendencies are often transmitted from parent to child is unquestionably true. A celebrated student of crime recently made the interesting statement that the greatest malefactors inherited their criminal instincts from a long line of thieves, robbers, and murderers. In the Paris Gallery of Rogues are a number of photographs of criminal celebrities whose ancestors for generations have been jailbirds and convicts. But while heredity undoubtedly contributes its quota to the criminal class, we must look further for the chief causes that swell its ranks. And first, the most prolific and fundamental source of crime is intemperance, for drink is generally the foundation of pauperism and underlies nearly all other sources of crime of every name and nature. The worst cradle of crime in New York City is in the Tenement House District, a region given over to pauperism and misery, the greater part of which was primarily induced by intemperance. Here, liquor saloons, corner groggeries, and bar rooms abound on every hand, ply their infamous trade day and night, and flourish on their ill-gotten gains extracted from the pockets of the poor, often sorely needed for half-starved women and children. The amount of vice and crime springing from and fostered by the promiscuous herding together of human beings in tenements has been a fruitful source of trouble to the police. In the fourth and sixth wards, the population is packed at the rate of 260,000 individuals to the square mile, and in the fourth ward alone at the rate of nearly 300,000 inhabitants to the square mile. The most densely populated districts of London do not approach anywhere near these figures. Nearly 500,000 persons live in tenement houses in New York, and there is one house that shelters 1,500 tenants. A recent systematic inspection of all tenement houses, during which a census was taken, shows that there are 32,390 tenements occupied by 237,972 families, which are comprised of 937,209 persons over five years of age and 142,519 under that age. Drunkenness is prevalent. Squalid misery abounds on every hand. In some of these wretched localities, no education but that of crime obtains. Ignorant, weary, and complaining wives, cross and hungry husbands, wild and ungoverned children are continually at war with each other. The young criminal is the product almost exclusively of these training schools of vice and crime in the worst tenement house districts. 80% of the crimes committed in New York City against property and against a person are perpetrated by individuals who never had any home life, or whose homes had ceased to be decent and desirable. Ignorant and poor, filthy and degraded, the low tenement victim drags out an existence which is as logical as it is miserable. Born in poverty and rags, nursed in filth and darkness, reared in ignorance and vice, matured in sin and crime, is the life history of the great majority of tenement house creatures, and the end must be either the almshouse or the prison, or possibly the felon's death. It is estimated that the 11th precinct of New York City, which is a tenement house district, contains 6% of the city's population, and the fact that the proportion of arrests in this precinct is nearly double that of any other precinct is a striking commentary upon the evils resultant upon tenement house life and its tendency to crime. This precinct contains a dense cosmopolitan population. It abounds with tenement houses, good, bad, and indifferent, mostly bad. No district of equal population in the city better illustrates the extreme destitution and misery of vast numbers of human beings huddled indiscriminately together like a mass of garbage 
to ferment and decompose into offensiveness, and certainly no district in which intemperance, pauperism, and crime prevail to so large an extent as in this. In it are born and bred a class of beings whose immediate ancestors were drunken, poverty-stricken, and vile, and whose progeny must be paupers and criminals, pitiable as well as lawless. That intemperance is often the cause, and pauperism and crime the outcome of such conditions, must be admitted. And that abject want, no matter what its cause, is among the foremost of all crime causes, as it assuredly is the most deplorable of all human conditions, must be accepted as true. Pauperism, induced by intemperance, improvidence, and other causes, but most often by drink, results necessarily from and in the herding of large numbers of human beings in tenement districts, where apartments are small and rents correspondingly low. The ignorant and vicious become speedily intermingled with the poverty-stricken, and the whole body rapidly assumes the characteristics of the vicious, who are naturally the strongest. The following report of an inspection made by an agent of the Sanitary Aid Society in the 11th Precinct is suggestive. The investigations reveal a state of affairs that which nothing more horrible can be imagined, and which, although perhaps equaled, cannot be surpassed in any European city. To get into these pestilential human rookeries, you have to penetrate courts and alleys reeking with poisonous and malodorous gases arising from accumulations of sewage and refuse scattered in all directions and often flowing beneath your feet. You have to ascend rotten staircases which threaten to give way beneath every step, and which in some cases have already broken down, leaving gaps that imperil the limbs and lives of the unwary. Walls and ceilings are black with the accretions of filth which have gathered upon them through long years of neglect. It exudes through cracks in the boards overhead and runs down the walls. It is everywhere. The rooms are crowded with sick and dirty children. Often several families occupy the same apartment. One of the inspectors reports 25 persons in three so-called rooms, but of which two are mere closets without windows or openings to the hall. Here is a family of father, mother, and four children, taking in 14 boarders and living in three rooms. There are 15 people of all sexes and ages in two little rooms, a great portion of which is, in addition, taken up with old rags and refuse. One of the directors discovered parents, three children, and 15 geese living in a filthy cellar. Another visited a room which had actually not been cleaned or whitewashed for five years, and where the ceiling was tumbling down in pieces one of the children being in bed from severe wounds on the face and shoulder afflicted by the falling plaster. Here are found a woman and five small children who are actually starving, having eaten nothing for two days. There a woman, but two days after confinement, being ejected by an inhuman landlord. This is no fancy picture of a pest hole in the great city of New York, for indisputable evidence of its truth is readily attainable. If this be the physical condition of about 60,000 of our fellow creatures in one ward, their moral condition makes us shudder to contemplate. Can any thinking man hazard the assertion that criminals are not born and reared in such a region of filth and degradation? Assume that poverty compels human beings to mask themselves. It does not follow, as is generally supposed, that the actual necessities of living are lessened in any way. The reverse is the fact for with crowding comes indulgence in vicious habits and practices, disease and death, with all the evils that attend them among the poor. Necessity, the inevitable sequence of intemperance, 
more than all other causes combined, drives people to the commission of crime. If one suffers from cold and hunger, and can neither buy nor beg food, fuel, and clothing, he must perforce steal it, for necessity is a master over human action. And when we add to this the inclination to inebriety, idleness, and vice engendered by the surroundings of their lives, we cannot wonder that from such a class and under such circumstances criminals are born. Petty thieving by boys and girls who are not taught to discriminate between right and wrong, who are in fact led to believe it a virtue to steal in order to provide themselves and parents with comforts impossible to obtain otherwise, is a matter of course among the poorest classes. Getting up behind a coal cart and purloining a few pieces of coal is a common sight in the tenement regions, and the boy who gets the greatest quantity without discovery is not only regarded by his companions with envy, but his poverty-stricken mother awards him the highest praise. Thus recruits are daily added to the great army of criminals. The boy who steals coal to provide his mother with a fire, or a shawl to cover her threadbare dress, becomes a hero, in his own estimation at least, and perseveres in the same direction toward a felon's cell. Persons arrested for intoxication and disorderly conduct arising therefrom, in a large percentage of instances, are fined only small sums by the police magistrates, or sent to the city prisons in default of payment. What is the effect? The family of the offender are often deprived of the necessities of life by the enforcement of a fine, or are left wholly without means by the husband's or father's incarceration. Necessity compels a resort to crime that the family may not starve. Wages of tenement holders are at all times small and scarcely adequate to the maintenance of their families, and when from the small wage is taken a fine, or the wage winner is prevented from earning his scanty pay, the family dependent upon him must suffer. The inevitable result is almstaking or crime. How this may be remedied is one of the most important questions to be considered by the social reformer. Tenement houses are admirable places for the concealment of criminals as well as the proceeds of crime. The intricacy of interminable and dark passages, the numberless halls and small rooms, the disposition to defend and screen each other so as to prevent apprehension and consequent punishment, make the tenements dens of thieves. The various gangs that have infested the city and given the police force no end of trouble for many years are found in the densely populated districts. The tenement houses afford them excellent hiding places, and from them the gangs are recruited when a police raid has temporarily decreased their ranks and sent many of them to penal institutions. It is deemed commendable by these gangs to assault the police, to molest and rob citizens, to fight, steal, and murder, here again, the collection of poor, ignorant, and vicious people into common homes engenders lawless habits and practices. The fact that the majority of the pawn shops in the city are located in tenement house districts is worthy of notice. It is well known that these institutions do not thrive upon the worn-out garments of the poor, and that the worthy poor have little else to dispose of in emergencies. These pawn shops, located in the midst of a pauperized community, are used more often by the criminal than by the temporarily distressed, and prove excellent storehouses for the spoil of the burglar and sneak. The door of the almshouse, that last resort of the conscienceless and most degraded, is the alternative to the commission of crime by the very poor. Vagrancy and a committal to the almshouse, therefore, is regarded by certain classes as far more despicable than to be actually criminal. 
A thief is looked upon by his friends as a gentleman as compared to a tramp, or one who begs from door to door, for he has money and dresses well. Even those who constitute what is called the best society regard a thief more leniently than they do a beggar, reasoning that a tramp is by choice or inclination a degraded and lawless wretch, undeserving of sympathy or assistance, while a thief is a criminal because of his education or his necessity. The fact is, both the tramp and thief have a common origin, their parent being necessity, superinduced by drink and evil companions. The poor are, by reason of their poverty, socially ostracized, and can sink no lower by a debased intercourse. In the tenements, the young of both sexes are constantly thrown together in large numbers in small apartments, continually hear the coarsest and most indecent language, and are led gradually into immorality. It is believed that 80% of the lowest class of female offenders were reared in tenement houses. Necessity, too often the legacy of a drunken husband or father, is the great primary force driving girls and women first to the door of starvation, then to comparative ease, afterward to indecency and crime. How pauperism can be abated or removed as one of the causes of crime is one of the intricate social problems that reformers have to solve. No human law ever framed has had sufficient wisdom to suppress or prevent it. That it is too often induced by drunkenness, and that it always thrives on the liquor traffic, must be apparent to any intelligent person. In some parts of the city may be found a dozen or more saloons in a single block. In many places where streets intersect at right angles, one can see criminal schools in full operation on each of the four corners. Some of them pretend to do a legitimate business, but many of them are the resorts of well-known crooks and desperate characters of all classes. There are more than 8,000 saloons and barrooms in New York which can boast at the same time of only about 400 churches. Saloons are open at nearly all hours of the day and night, and their business is carried on in the greater part of every 24 hours, not excepting Sundays. The bar rooms in the principal hotels and restaurants are respectable enough, so far as any bar room can be respectable, but with the great majority of the establishments for drinking purposes, the case is far different. Nine bar rooms in ten, and we might fairly say 19 out of 20, are the property of local politicians, or are managed in their interest. Usually the liquor dealers are in a majority on the board of aldermen by actual count, or if they appear to be in a minority, it is in appearance only, as they are sure to be represented by men whom they have elected from other occupations. In all the departments of the service of the city, the liquor interest has an important place. One who has studied the state of affairs in the metropolis argues as follows, to prove that the saloons and barrooms have the control of the local government. 8,000 barrooms mean 8,000 proprietors, 8,000 to 12,000 assistants, we will take the lowest figures, which together make 16,000 votes directly in the interest of rum. Every barroom can be estimated good for at least five votes among its regular patrons, or 40,000 in all. Add 5,000 votes for the wholesale dealers and their employees, whose business depends wholly on the retail establishments, and this will give a total of 61,000 votes from the liquor interest. The beer saloon is first cousin to the bar room, if not its twin brother. The owners, managers, and employees of the breweries, and the owners, managers, and employees of the hundreds of saloons and beer gardens throughout the city, comprise not fewer than 30,000 voters, which number added to the foregoing brings us to 91,000 in all.
The owners of the buildings that are leased for drinking places added to those who profit more or less indirectly by the liquor traffic, though not nominally engaged in it, will swell the total to more than 100,000. The total vote of the city for mayor at the election of 1889 was 197,789. Further comment is unnecessary. In its political aspect, the barroom is bad enough, but it is infinitely worse in its criminal aspect. Many of the owners and more of the assistants in barrooms are closely connected with violations of the laws against felony. If justice were done to liquor dealers, many of the places of bar owner or bartender would today be vacant in consequence of the involuntary absence of their present occupants to do the state some service at Sing Sing or other prisons. Numerous barrooms throughout the city are well known to the police as haunts of thieves and training schools where young candidates receive their initiation into crime. The green goods men who send circulars to people in the country inviting them to buy counterfeit money almost always have their letters addressed to bar rooms. When followed up by the police, the barkeeper says a man whom he doesn't know asked permission to have his letters sent there. He calls every day or two to ask for them, but the barkeeper hasn't seen him for a week and hasn't the slightest idea where he lives. It is difficult to prove that the swindler and barkeeper are leagued together but it is pretty certain that the barkeeper knows a great deal more than he will tell. He is probably a sharer in the business, or is paid a certain commission not to know anything. Not long since a friend of mine, who had for years been on the detective force in another large city, had occasion to visit a New York barroom notorious as the loafing place for a gang of thieves. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon when he found himself in one of the worst localities in the city. There were bar rooms all about, and nearly every one was a den of thieves. They were frequented by young fellows, many not out of their teens, and of the class described as toughs. A young fellow was just coming out of the door of a saloon on the corner, who was in the Tombs Police Court that very morning. His mother was the complainant against him. She said he was once a good boy, but for the last few months he had been idle. He spent much of his time at the saloon associating with bad boys and very frequently came home under the influence of liquor, or more often did not come at all. Last night, said his mother in court, he threatened to throw all the furniture out of the window, and said he'd give me and his sister a good beating just to make us know what he could do. The judge turned angrily toward the young tough and asked what he had to say for himself. I wasn't doing nothing, he answered with sullen look and downcast eyes. I didn't throw nothing out in the windows and I didn't hit none of them at all. I was just in fun, Judge, and I won't do so no more. Will you go to work and keep out of the bar rooms and lodging houses if I let you off this time? Yes, Judge, I will, and I won't run no more with the gang of fellows I've been running with. Then the mother pleaded for his release and said she was sure he would be a good boy now. He was let off with a warning that he would get 30 days on the island the next time he appeared in court. He kept his promise, as most of these young students in crime keep their promises to the police judges or anybody else. He was with the gang at the bar room within an hour after being led out of the police court, and told with great glee and to the amusement of his comrades how he fooled their judge and hauled their wool over his eyes beautiful. The bartender and also the proprietor enjoyed the joke hugely, and the young scoundrel's heart swelled with pride as he realized that he had become a hero. These fellows do not look upon arrest and imprisonment as a degradation, but exactly the reverse. 
True, they don't like the inconvenience of imprisonment and the enforced absence from their favorite haunts, nor is the food and discipline of Blackwell's Island at all to their tastes. But when their terms have expired and they return to the places that knew them of yore, they are received with applause and honor. There is a jollification in the barroom that forms the headquarters of the gang, and not infrequently the proprietor makes the event a special occasion by furnishing free drinks to all hands. He is sincere in his welcome of the returning hero, as he expects to make a liberal percentage out of the next robbery perpetrated by the gang, every member of which will be a good customer for weeks, or possibly months, while maturing plans for fresh deeds of lawlessness. Upon entering the saloon, my friend saw a half a dozen idle fellows lounging about, not one of them apparently over twenty-two years of age, together with a barkeeper and a little ragged boy who had to stand on tiptoe to reach the top of the counter. The boy had just come in with a dirty, broken-nosed pitcher to be filled with beer, and the barkeeper and the loafers who constituted the gang were having some fun with him. A scent was dropped on the floor, and the urchin was told he could have it if he would pick it up. As he stooped to take it, the barkeeper slipped a long piece of ice down the little fellow's back next to his skin. The idlers laughed at his squirming antics, and so did the boy, not because he enjoyed the joke, but he was rather proud of the fact that the barkeeper, who had served his term on the island and at Sing Sing, and was noted for his pugilism, was willing to take any notice of a boy not old enough to rank as a tough, but entertaining hopes that he would be one in course of time. A red-faced tough stood a little apart from the others. He was one of the oldest in appearance among those in the room. In a low and confidential voice, my friend asked, Is Boston Jack about? Naw, was the reply with a suspicious look. He's a-doin' it three months on their island. Sorry I can't find him, said my friend with a half-sigh. We used to work as pals in Boston before he came to New York, and I wanted to see him for a little job. The red-faced man looked up at the suggestion of a job, and his interest was sufficiently roused to ask what was up. Seated in a retired corner of the room, my friend hinted that if a trusty pal could be found to take a hand, there was something to be made and no tales told. If it's a job for the stuff, I'm with you, was his listener's low response to the non-committal inquiry. I've been in lots of lays with Jack, and him and me's the best of friends. At last he introduced himself as Bill Carver, though he added that the boys called him Porgy Bill sometimes, in consequence of his having eaten seven porgies at a single sitting. My friend grew confidential and intimated that he had made the acquaintance of a man who had recently arrived in the city from the country, who had a large amount of money with him, which could be divided between anybody who assisted in getting it away from him. "'Can't you fetch him into the back room?' said Porgy Bill softly, as he made a move toward the door of the snuggery at the end of the bar. But he hasn't got the money with him. He's locked it up in the safe of the hotel and won't take it round in his pockets. Why can't you get him to bring the stuff down here somehow? Tell him the hotel's the dangerous place for his cash. For hotel clerks every little while runs away when money that's in the safe. See? Then the following plot was hatched between them. My friend was to persuade his newfound acquaintance from the country that the hotel safe was not regarded as perfectly secure, on account of the uncertain honesty of the clerks. He was to advise him to put the money in the bank and offer to accompany him there. He must manage to detain him so that by the time the bank was reached, its doors would be closed for the day. He was to recommend the citizen savings or the Bowery Bank as the safest in the city, both of which were convenient to the haunt of the gang. Upon arriving at the bank and finding it closed, 
They were to saunter leisurely down the street, and when opposite to this saloon, he was to invite his friend to take a drink of ice water or something stronger. If he called for liquor, it would be drugged. Or if he declined to drink at all, poor G. Bill and two of his cronies were to resort to the desperate chance of quickly pounding the countryman into insensibility. At the same time, they were to go through the pretense of pounding his companion, so that if any fuss was made about the affair, he would seem no less a victim than his friend. All being settled, the friends separated, and for all I know, they may still be waiting for their proposed victim. It is not unsafe on the street in this part of the city in the daytime, but at night one will do well to look out for himself. Most of the gangs work in the night. They follow strangers, especially drunken ones, keeping an eye all the while upon the policeman making his round. Two, three, or four of these fellows work together, and when a good opportunity presents itself, they fall upon a victim, and while one holds and a second chokes him, a third rifles his pockets. It is all over in a few seconds, and the man is dropped insensible on the sidewalk, while the thieves scatter in various directions, to meet later at their headquarters, where the spoil is divided and freely spent in saloons while concocting new crimes. Most of the robberies, great and small, committed in New York are planned in the back rooms of low-drinking places or executed by gangs using the bar rooms as their headquarters. Break up these places, and a long step will be taken towards the prevention of crime. The very lowest of drinking places are cellar groggeries, called bucket shops. Beer and spirits are sold in jugs, buckets, and bottles, as well as over the bar. And in many of the shops, the remains of drinks, together with the washings of the bar and the rinsings of the cloths with which it is wiped, are thrown into a tub and sold for two and three cents a quart. This liquid is known by fancy names such as dog's nose, all sorts, swipes, and other terms. Drunkenness at its worst and most degraded forms is to be seen around these bucket shops, especially at night. Men and women in rags are to be seen there spending what they have earned, begged, or stolen for the vilest drinks, and when unable to pay for what they want, they watch their opportunity to secure a treat. Children of both sexes swarm and perforce listen to blasphemy and tales of criminal exploits, and it is often here that they receive their first lessons in crime, drawing it in, as it were, with their first breath. The child thus familiarized with evil becomes a tough, and the tough at a later period of life is the burglar, or worse, whose existence alternates between the dark deeds of his profession and the walls of the penitentiary, where he does time in punishment for his evil acts. An important adjunct of the barroom as a training school for crime is the cheap lodging house. Lodgings at 5, 10, 15, and 20 cents a night are to be found all through this locality. No questions are asked as to the name or character or anything else concerning a lodger. He pays his fee, and that is all that is required. The cheap lodging houses are excellent retreats for them after committing a robbery, and not a few of the keepers are in league with these criminals. Regarded as places for sleeping by an honest man, these houses are not attractive. Crowded closely together, often in damp cellars, in beds reeking with filth and alive with vermin, the patrons, many of whom are more or less under the influence of liquor, are dangerous and noisy, and on frequent occasions the slumbers of all are disturbed by a row that may end in murder. The proprietor is indifferent to such possibilities, and if a lodger objects on the ground that he wants to sleep, he will quite likely be met with the argument on the part of the owner. I sells you the place for sleeping, but I don't sell the sleep with it. How true is that striking passage from the 23rd chapter of Proverbs in which the baneful effects of intemperance are vividly described. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, 
Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Shakespeare makes even his clowns and fools expose the vice of intemperance and the degradation of drunkards. Olivia, what's a drunken man like fool? Clown, like a drowned man, a fool and a madman. One draft makes him a fool, the second mads him, and the third drowns him. What a sermon, too, on the blessings of temperance is contained in As You Like It, when Adam says to his young master, Let me be your servant, though I look old, yet I am strong and lusty. For in my youth I never did apply hot and rebellious liquors in my blood, nor did not with unbashful forehead woo the means of weakness and debility. Therefore my age is as a lusty winter, frosty but kindly. Let me go with you. I'll do the service of a younger man in all your business and necessities. End of chapter 25